Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, March 28th, marks our 93rd program. My name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Actus Conference Preview, Palliative Medicine. So I'm joined today by my co-host, uh, Laurie Prescott. Laurie, of course, is the CDI Education Director for us here at Actus in Middleton, Massachusetts. Um, Laurie is a familiar co-host on the show, but just to recap, she's a developer and lead instructor for our Actus Bootcamp line. She's a former CDI manager uh, and a nursing manager um, and has been busy with some projects for us behind the scenes here, authoring our CDI, our essential guide to supporting quality care measures through documentation improvement, uh, working on a second edition of the popular CDI Specialist Complete Training Guide as well. I'm glad to have her back on the show. So welcome, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. Okay. And next, I'd like to introduce our industry guest today. So we have with us uh, Beth Wolf. Beth is an MD, CCDS, and CPC, and is the Medical Director of HIM at Roper St. Francis Healthcare in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Wolf is a practicing physician with 17 years of experience, currently working in a 657-bed not-for-profit hospital system with nearly 800 physicians on staff. Five years ago, she accepted the challenge of promoting CDI as the medical director of HIM. And as a leader physician and CDI, Wolf's role is bringing CDI efforts to physician interests and ultimately to the hospital's strategic priorities. And I'm glad to have her on the show. So welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Wolf. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. All right. So um, before we get to the poll, you know, uh, Beth is going to be sharing a part of her presentation from the upcoming 11th annual Actus Conference, which is held, as you probably saw on the prior screen, May 21 to 24 in San Antonio, Texas. I hope you can make it there. I hope many of our listeners are planning on coming. This uh, program today is sort of a slice of, of Beth's presentation. She's going to be doing a full hour on this topic, but we're here to talk a little bit about palliative care um, as well as hospice care um, and and some of the issues around documentation in that aspect. So um, if you do like today's program, consider going to Beth's full hour uh, at the Actus Conference in, uh, in May. So let's start with a question, a poll question related to today's topic. Pull that up on your screen. You should be seeing that now. Uh, I ask you to review that and I'll read it out loud and, and please uh, answer the question that corresponds most closely to you. The question reads, do you currently review palliative care and, and or hospice care cases? So your options are yes, both. Uh, yes, but hospice only. Yes, palliative care only. Uh, no, you do not or don't know or, or not applicable to your situation. Again, do you currently review palliative care and or hospice care cases? Yes, we review both. Yes, but hospice only. 
Yes, but palliative only. No, you don't. Or um, you either don't know or it's not applicable. As I always say, many of our Actus Radio listeners are not necessarily in acute care hospital settings. All right, we'll go ahead and we'll close this poll. We've got, got about 80% of our audience voting, so we will uh, come back to that in just a few minutes. Okay, as I mentioned, our guest today is Beth Wolf. Dr. Wolf, welcome to the program. Thanks for being a part of Actus Radio and for sharing a little bit of your uh, presentation coming up in May. I'm looking forward to it. I try to, you know, we have six tracks of education going on at once. I do try to get my, stick my head in all, each one of them as best I can throughout the day, and I'll, I'll promise to do that with yours. Um, but maybe just to start, could you talk a little bit? Yeah, could you talk a little bit uh, with our audience about palliative care and hospice care? including how they are alike and uh, overlap and, and also how they differ? Sure. I mean, this is definitely one of the most common questions I get as a palliative care consultant, and it's really important uh, to explain it clearly uh, to alleviate some anxiety and also to provide the most accurate information possible. So both hospice and palliative care focus on providing relief from the symptoms and stress of a serious illness. The care is always patient and family-centered, and it's provided by specialty-trained doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, really a team. And the goal is to improve quality of life for both the patient and family. So that's how they're similar. They're different in that palliative care services are based on need, like our traditional medical necessity. Uh, and hospice care is based on prognosis. So palliative care, in all that I described above, is appropriate at any age and at any stage of a serious illness. When I introduce the concept to a patient and family for the first time, I explain how we work together with their other doctors to provide an extra layer of support. I talk about our team approach and that we address not only the physical, but emotional, social, and spiritual needs. Again, tailoring the consult to the patient's needs and wishes while promoting their autonomy, access to information, and choice. So it is a broad sweep, uh, but again, really important to let them know uh, what our intentions are because it is often a stressful time. At some point along the course of their illness, it may not be possible to cure, or a patient may choose not to undergo certain treatments. Hospice is generally introduced at this time, and the eligibility depends on prognosis. Again, palliative care need, hospice prognosis. To qualify for hospice, two physicians have to believe that the patient has a terminal condition. And by that, I mean there is a greater than 50% chance of death in the next six months if the illness progresses at an expected or natural course. I always tell patients that I don't get to have a crystal ball, but if we look at similar patients, this is what we expect. So hospice care at that point helps terminal, terminally ill individuals continue life essentially with as minimal of disruption to normal activities while trying to remain in the, in the home environment. Um, so again, palliative care need, hospice prognosis. Gotcha. And I just want to say, by the way, Beth, thank you for, for what you do. I know that's a, it's gotta be a very difficult job. So, um, it's part of your responsibilities is doing that. And, uh, it's admirable. Well, I, I think that I learn from my patients every day how to how to be better and do better. So it's it's really a privilege. Right. 
I, I really appreciate those definitions, Beth. That's, that's really helpful to someone like me that hasn't been involved in that type of care. When we're um, looking as CDI specialists, when we're reviewing records for this patient population, can you help us identify some of the keys or clinical cues that um, we should be paying attention to that might give us a little more assistance in assuring that we're capturing the appropriate diagnoses? And um, perhaps even help us understand who are those providers, the provider types that we should be paying attention to more closely in the, in the record. Sure. You know, I think the first thing to understand is that many patients in the hospital with life-limiting or life-threatening illnesses and these complex care requirements are not being seen by palliative care specialists, partly because there's not enough of us to go around and also because there are many specialties that provide very excellent primary palliative care. So it's important to recognize the patient characteristics and not just focus on whether or not a palliative care specialist has been consulted. So that's first. You know, these patients are obviously sick, so they're going to have all of the, the traditional serious illnesses that we see in the hospital, and CDI continues to follow their processes and look for those things. Some key differences, I think, um, in this particular patient population is that they often stay longer and they're seen by multiple specialists. And we know the more people in the chart, uh, you know, sometimes the more opportunity for conflicting or ambiguous documentation. And I think CDI, as they follow this story along, uh, can really help with concurrent corrections and uh, make it so our coder colleagues after discharge have an easier time codifying the story. In addition, another instance uh, that I see opportunity uh, for patients uh, with serious illnesses when they're transitioned to a more comfort focus. And oftentimes this happens in the hospital because they're too sick to go home. If you don't have a designated inpatient hospice unit, unit they, they remain as inpatients, uh, acute inpatients. And we can't forget to capture the diagnoses that come toward end of life that are not necessarily treated aggressively. And in particular, things like respiratory failure, uh, encephalopathy, again, just because we're not using BiPAP or uh, giving fluid to correct the BUN and creatinine doesn't mean that these diagnoses uh, shouldn't be documented and final coded to impact the severity of illness and risk of mortality. Right. Thank you. You know, Beth, you just alluded to a couple of those diagnoses. Um, that might be in need of review on these patients. Are, are there some typical ones you see that are frequently left, you know, vague or undocumented at all with maybe just some signs and symptoms? And, and you know, what type of success can a CDI specialist have in this area? What type of impact can they make? Um, maybe you've seen in your facility or, or, or more broadly. Sure, you know, I think CDI has tremendous impact on these patients. I mean, the most common diagnoses that we see in consultation are cancer, heart failure, dementia, respiratory failure, and stroke. Um, um, there was just a wide range of specificity that I could have added to each of those. So as principal or secondary, uh, oftentimes they need clarification. And I think, you know, this is bread and butter for CDI. What makes these patients more complex is when you start looking for what's missing. I think in, in my patient population, uh, two things uh, are often missing or not captured that I think greatly impact the severity of illness and risk of mortality. The first one is nutritional status, and the second one is functional status. So in our facility, 
uh, uh, CDI nurses are actually able to introduce or trigger a nutrition consult. And I tell them palliative care patients are malnourished until proven otherwise. So they're going back on previous encounters and looking for information that may uh, uh, prompt them to trigger that. I've seen their diligence actually result in recognition and treatment uh, that impacted outcomes, so can't be understated. The second uh, piece of kind of the prognostication puzzle is functional status, and this is a, a major predictor of survival in palliative care patients. Unfortunately, it is extremely difficult to capture this in codified language. You know, things like inability to work, to walk, to get out of bed, to eat, to manage self-care, to converse coherently, to even stay awake, all these things that impact uh, the trajectory and the course of a disease and prognosis. CDI is in a unique position to recognize common functional scales that we use in palliative care, even in cardiology and oncology, and tease out information that could be used in queries to capture codable diagnoses. I think the most common opportunities I see, and again, you know, we don't have great codes for functional status within ICD-10, but the ones we do are related to mental status. So again, uh, making sure that we quantify or qualify altered uh, mental status with diagnoses like delirium, encephalopathy, coma, capturing the Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, you know, we finally can get eye, verbal, and motor function uh, codified and, and make a difference on severity of illness. And hopefully in the future, we'll see more of that as it, as it really does impact our ability to prognosticate. Great, thank you, Beth. That's nice. Beth, you know, I, I've had the privilege for the sneak peek of your ACTUS presentation. And um, one thing that I was really excited to see was that um, you're speaking a little about how CDI can impact accuracy and reimbursement based on profis and ENM code, code assignment and CPT codes. Um, can you talk a little bit about this aspect um, as it's related to hospice and palliative care? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and you know, this is this is one thing that gets me in the door with physicians when I start talking about their billing. So um, I oftentimes uh, dovetail the two. So for those who aren't familiar with evaluation and management code assignment, every initial and follow-up visit requires that certain elements of the history and physical be documented in order to be billed. And, you know, we've seen electronic record templates, the HPI, the review system, social history, family history, exam detail. So all of that assessment. In addition, probably the most important thing about level of billing is medical decision making. And guess where that is? That's in the assessment and plan. And it's related to the number of problems, the severity of problems, and the complexity of problems. And as you could imagine, the words we use and the way that they're translated into codified data will impact how these charts are looked at and assessed for that. So again, very important for physicians to understand that. I'll give an example. If I'm consulted for hypertension and the blood pressure is normal and they're on medications, it's likely going to be a low-level visit. Uh, they'll take roughly 15 minutes. On the other hand, if they have hypertension but they come in with acute kidney injury, hyperkalemia, syncope from hypotension, my evaluation and management is going to be high-level or, or roughly taking 35 minutes. And that, you know, again, you know, you can kind of uh, uh, use those times roughly. Each level has this expected duration of time. So there is an opportunity in the guidelines of Medicare and most insurance companies to bill based on that time if more than 50% of the visit was spent counseling and or coordinating care. So that's essentially much of what I do. 
palliative care visits involve complex shared decision-making, extensive communication between caregivers, and I'm often able to meet that time-based criteria. Again, primary palliative care, in addition, uh, you know, if you're, anyone can bill based on time, as long as you're documenting that counseling and coordinating of care took up an extensive amount of time. Frankly, it's much easier to remember and document the time criteria than to remember all of the detailed component requirements uh, for the traditional E&M billing. Remember the social history, family history exam parts. However, I think it's really important for palliative care physicians uh, who perform a highly complex visit in less than the average time designation uh, always at least consider using the component rules to bill appropriately. I want to capture my work and the risk involved, and, and you know you just have to be cognizant of that. So for palliative care physicians, they have two options, the traditional and time-based. Another often overlooked opportunity for palliative care billing is within the critical care codes. And most of us don't really think of palliative care as providing critical care, uh, but, but there is an instance where it becomes relevant. Critical care codes are based exclusively on time, and they pay more, as you might imagine, the routine evaluation and management visits. So critical care billing for family discussions is a legitimate assignment if the patient has at least one organ failure and is at risk for life-threatening deterioration. So these patients need to be unstable. The second piece of this is that the patient must lack capacity to participate in decision-making. So there is an added complexity when the patient cannot participate meeting with the surrogates and going through all the issues. Now, the discussion must be needed to make a significant decision. So what do I mean by that? You know, I'm talking about ventilator withdrawal, a compassionate extubation in a patient who's not going to get better, or de-escalation of care in a critically ill patient where, uh, you know, a comfort focus is established and BiPAP is removed. And again, critical care is not location-based. It's critical illness-based. So I provide these services often in the ICU on the ventilator patients, but, as, but also on regular units. And keeping in mind that all other family discussions, no matter how long they are, uh, are not counted toward critical care unless they meet that criteria. The other common example in my practice is a brain death determination. So I know that's a lot to take in, uh, but, but that's kind of uh, the billing in a nutshell for us. Thank you. That, uh, that actually offers a lot of great advice to how CDIs can help create buy-in um, with physicians to, to work with them, um, pointing out how what they do for us is also helping them. Thank you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very important here. I'm glad to hear you be providing some of that. You know, we, we did get some good questions during the show that we unfortunately can't get to all of these, but uh, maybe I'll try to send a couple to you after the show, Beth. But um, again, for folks that are planning to attend the conference, it's a great opportunity to uh, be able to ask Beth these types of questions and get a lot more detail on this area. But Beth, maybe to wrap up, um, can you talk just a bit about what you might be looking forward to uh, at the 11th annual ACTUS conference, besides, of course, presenting? Um, anything you, you're, well, you're, you're excited <laughs> about going to? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've attended uh, ACTUS for the last four years, and I think um, the amount of excitement uh, cannot be understated. I think it, it energizes me. You know, I come home feeling empowered and, and full of ideas, and, and I think that although it's grown in size, um, it still feels very personal. So I'm looking forward to that. I think specifically 
uh, you know, I'm very interested in some of the topics that are addressing how CDI professionals are analyzing data and developing meaningful mechanisms for feedback to physicians and hospitals. You know, I think we've worked so hard to make sure this codified data is accurate. You know, now I want to use it. I want to take that information and really impact uh, individual patient health and, and our community. So I would say that's my, my best go-to. All right. Yeah, I always say that it's uh, simultaneously the most uh, draining event of the year for me, but the most invigorating, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I, I leave exhausted, but I leave, I leave. you know, it's it's very few times we get to meet our members face-to-face, and it's it's amazing to see the energy and passion they have for what they do. And, um, you know, you, as a speaker, you're a big part of that. So I'm looking forward to your session and looking forward to seeing you, Beth, and, and just uh, – a few weeks now. Very good. All right, let's um, let's go back to our poll question. Again, we asked folks uh, to weigh in on question related to today's topic, which was, do you currently review palliative care and or hospice care cases? So here's our results. Uh, 35% do review uh, both patient types. 1%, very small, uh, review just hospice. 25%, um, review palliative only. 31% do not. So almost a third don't don't review these cases, and another 8% either don't know or or it's not applicable to their situation. So uh, those are your results. Maybe we'll start with you, Beth. Any any thoughts here on the percentages? Yeah, you know, I think um, uh, there's there's rationale for for all of these answers. You know, I think we uh, do both. Uh, we understand that only the palliative care patients sort of contribute to our case mix index and our severity of illness and risk of mortality. I think if you do the hospice reviews, it's important to work with your hospice doctors so that they understand why you're asking, and, and really it's to get the most accurate and specific diagnoses. And, you know, hospices are under scrutiny to provide those that specificity now more so than ever. So, again, traditionally because they are, you know, build a very, very different capitated way uh, than the hospital BRG system, um, they have resisted. But I think education and, and review is important. All right. How about you, Laurie? Any thoughts there? I, I'm just saying that maybe after people listen to what Beth has to say, they might see that there's an opportunity that they're missing. Um, you know, this always, I, I know when I was actively reviewing charts, I did not necessarily look at this population, um, but she's brought to light that maybe perhaps I should have been looking at them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we appreciate that, Beth. At this point, we're going to move to our uh, In the News segment. Again, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Um, you know, speaking of the what we covered today, the type of patient care provided in hospice and palliative care, uh, this, this is somewhat related, this article I'm pulling up now from Medscape.com, which uh, the headline is Diagnostic Errors Tops New List of Patient Safety Concerns. And this article I did want to share because it does underscore the importance of accurate diagnosis on, on patient safety. Um, so to kind of recap here, the ECRI Institute has ranked diagnostic errors as a number one fear in this year's top 10 patient safety concerns for healthcare organizations. There is a link to that complete top 10 list there. 
the Institute notes that each year about one in 20 adults experiences a diagnostic error. Uh, there's a quote here from Gail Horvath, who's a patient safety analyst for the ECRI Institute, who writes that, uh, in a press release that even some hospital errors said to be caused by the national, natural progression of disease may have been the result of diagnostic error. Um, Institute suggests using algorithms to help avoid biases that can cause errors and better capturing of data on errors and near misses. You know, I've, I've heard of hospitals now, you know, if pretty common now using, you know, um, algorithms and, and EMR um, assistance to capture sepsis, for example. Um, you know, Horvath goes on to state the clinical decision support interventions can also be helpful by identifying ordered tests that haven't been done or by flagging incidental findings that require follow-up. Uh, so then the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, or SIDM, commented in a recent press release that it applauds the ECRI Institute for highlighting diagnostic error prominently and noting that it's both a cognitive and systemic problem. Um, SIDM has convened also this coalition to improve diagnosis to engage patients, clinicians, and health systems in reducing diagnostic error. So sort of an interesting article um, that talks about some things we've discussed today. You, you can take a look at the other patient safety concerns here, the full article. I'll, as I always do, I will we'll link to it in the notes to the show. We do post all the uh, Actus radios on actus.org for you to listen to. And just kind of tying this back to CDI a little more, you know, um, there is some debate, we probably all know this, on whether CDI is really part of the clinical care team. I think most say they're, they're really not in terms of patient care itself. You know, they're not, most of them are, are not seeing the patient. Some of them are um, during rounds, but many of them are not. They might be reviewing uh, in an office space, the record, the health record, or even remotely in some cases. Um, and they place them on more of the administrative side of healthcare. You know, on the other hand, as, as Beth talked a lot about today, you know, many CDI specialists uh, are involved. Um, some of the, many of them are nurses. They're not exclusively nurses. We have some great HIM professionals in this field. We do see some nurses. We even see some physicians. Um, all of these types being in the chart may see signs and symptoms of a diagnosis that has not yet been documented. Um, so CDI can play a part in, in the patient care role in terms of uh, concurrent chart review, alerting physicians when something may be uh, off, you know, a, me a medication may be indicated and is not um, being provided or, or vice versa. There's no diagnosis associated that, that may lead to a, a better case, patient care scenario. So um, kind of a big topic more than the scope of this show can provide, but just curious, maybe I'll ask Beth, what are your thoughts on the article and in general, place of CDI and assisting physicians with, with, with arriving at a, a more accurate diagnosis? Sure. Well, this is a, a very interesting read, and of course, I had to Google more about it. Uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, direct patient care, hands-on patient care, um, you know, our CDI team is not uh, participating in that, but, but certainly indirectly, there is no question that our CDI team minimizes the risk of, of diagnostic errors. You know, they're going through that chart with, with a physician mind. You know, they are looking at differentials. Uh, they are checking off clinical criteria. 
and making decisions every day about the likelihood of a diagnosis. That's how they compile a compliant query. So, you know, I think there's no question that they're involved. When they talked about uh, uh, diagnostic error, they really classified it as sort of that individual uh, error, that cognitive bias. And, you know, it's so hard to measure. I mean, we just don't have a great way of tracking that. Um, but again, I think using checklists and standardizing diagnoses, all of which CDI has been involved with, really you know, helps promote identification of things like sepsis and, again, putting that question in the chart. The second piece of the diagnostic error was uh, really about kind of poor communication and, and I'll say systems, but in our uh, kind of world, poor communication. And I think, you know, our documentation and our electronic record oftentimes becomes segmented and disjointed. And I think CDI really helps to put that picture together. And, you know, we also work with our IT department. You know, we struggle to find the same information physicians struggle to find. So we're part of, of that solution. So, so I think there's many ways that CDI contributes to patient care and patient safety. Right. Thanks, Beth. Any, any thoughts on this, Lori? Oh, I, com I completely agree with what Beth's been saying. I, I often tell people that CDIs have the privilege and are sometimes one of the only people that actually reads the entire record. And there are a lot of times in reading that record that you note those miscommunications or that missed lab test or perhaps the wrong medications in order to treat the infection. Um, and it, I do think that we play a piece in that by bringing that to the attention of the caregivers. And usually that means bringing it to the nursing staff to notify the physician. We can be involved in that to a certain extent, but we do have to be um, very aware that as CDIs, we should not be driving patient care or patient care decisions because then we're walking on that road of compliance where it looks like maybe we are trying to have tests done to increase reimbursement or or other things. So we do have to be very careful because we're not actually part of that team caring for the patient. But I, I do think we play a huge piece in facilitating communication and making making sure that the right care is delivered at the right time. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks guys. We're gonna wrap up here with a quick but important um, ACTUS update. So ACTUS update, uh, excuse me, is the, um, was a segment of the show bringing you what's going on inside of the association. Um, I do want to remind all of our listeners that right now, if you haven't seen in CDI strategies uh, or the emails we've sent, uh, we do have the, uh, we're open right now for the uh, ACTUS Advisory Board. So ACTUS Advisory Board, we elect four new members each year, four members rotate off the board. These are three-year terms of service that will be starting in April 2018, next month. Uh, we have 10 candidates running for these four vacancies. Um, so we're going to be voting in two RN candidates this year, one HIM coding professional, and one physician. We try to keep the board balanced with a variety of backgrounds, and we do believe that all of these folks um, can do and do serve um, in CDI. So. Um, voting on the ACTUS re uh, board requires you to be an ACTUS member. Um, so if you're a non-member listening, you, you cannot vote, but I would encourage you to become an ACTUS member if you're not already. Um, if you are an ACTUS member, there's a link in the CDI strategies and in an email, we'll be going to be reminding you again this week in this week's issue of CDI strategies. Um, but you go in and you review the candidates. We ask them to provide uh, their backgrounds and qualifications in CDI and in ACTUS. 
as well as the reasons why they're interested in serving on the advisory board, um, as well as in one idea they might implement or help them to implement to improve our association and or the broader CDI profession. So you review the candidates and then you select whether you'd like to vote for them and click the, the vote button. It's really that simple. Um, we, have, we do ha have the page set up so that you can only vote uh, once per login. So you can't stuff the ballot box if you know one of these folks. But uh, I would encourage you to check, um, check them out, read their bios, take a few minutes to do this. I can't stress uh, enough how important this is. You know, if you, if you do like our position papers and white papers, if you've listened to our quarterly conference calls, um, if you've ever sent in a question that's been answered uh, by the advisory board, if you've read their columns leading off CDI strategies, uh, they're gonna be doing a session at the conference this year, a lightning round session of ideas. Uh, these, these are the folks that are volunteering to provide their expertise and to provide guidance that we publish within ACTUS. So um, really important to vote just like voting in any election is. Um, so I, please take a, some, a, a few minutes of your day to review these candidates. They all worked hard to get there on the final ballot. We had almost 40 applicants. We had to narrow these down to 10 to give a manageable voting number. Number of qualified applicants you may recognize. I've been scrolling through some of the nursing candidates. We've also got our physician candidates at the bottom here. Erica Rima, Vaughn Matical, um, and Adrian Martin. So um, check them out and cast your vote and um, may the best, uh, best, best candidates win. All right, well, that's going to do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. We'll be back in two weeks for our second show running up to our 11th annual conference, uh, CDI for Surgeons, featuring um, Trey Lacharte, who you guys might know. He's a former Actus board member himself. So as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests or ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. Thanks again, Beth, for joining today's program, and uh, we'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you.